0: We'll be reading this morning from the letter to the Galatians, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. As you know, we've been on this series of Galatians, and Paul wrote this letter to the people who lived in Galatia. Um, We haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about, was it to the northern Galatians or the southern Galatians? There are a lot of interesting factoids there, or what year it was written. But we know this, that in a land far away, used to be called Asia Minor, we we refer to as Turkey, there were people who had heard the gospel, and they needed to hear the gospel again, and again, and again. And so Paul wrote this letter to remind them of what they already knew. Hear now the words of Paul, the words of God, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles." for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your word and we need your spirit to illuminate your word for us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would take these words and bring them into our ears and our hearts and our minds so that we may know you and know you well. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. Well, it's the uh, Fourth of July weekend. Um, that brings to mind Independence Day, Declaration of Independence. I'm a pastoral intern, so I sort of have a, an opportunity to get up here and say something and then be scolded later or something. I want to bring up something really controversial. Um, Jigsaw puzzles. How do you do a jigsaw puzzle? And, and I'm not just asking when you're by yourself, but especially when you're in, I don't know, a couple or a group of people. You open the box. Maybe you look at the lid. Do you do, you do the outside pieces first? Is that what you do? Or do you find the clumps of things that kind of look similar? Do you pick something on the box and, and take the piece and set it on the box to try to line it up? You know, they intentionally make the box a different size so that you can't get away with that every time. What do you do? How do you approach? I know it's controversial because I know that at least once in your life you've been putting together a jigsaw puzzle and you say, no, 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 don't do it that way. I'm in the middle of this. You took my pieces. That's a corner piece. At least once you've done this. So I know it can be controversial, and I'm sorry for bringing that up. Into the Gospel provides us with a guide. And Paul has said that he's gone to Jerusalem to discuss how to assemble the jigsaw puzzle of the kingdom. I don't mean that the kingdom is an actual jigsaw puzzle, so don't misunderstand me. But as we've been studying in this book, in this letter, There are a bunch of pieces going on. Paul has been out there. What did he say? After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. He's been out there doing the gospel. And the apostles have been back in Jerusalem working the gospel, and other people have been out doing the gospel. And Paul is coming back to Jerusalem. Why? To have a bit of a conversation about how they're going about assembling the pieces to ensure they're working together and collaborating well. And that's the picture, that's the the idea that Paul is sharing here. You know, it's a historical passage, this chapter 2, 1 through 10, but as is so common with Paul, in the middle of a historical passage, he's telling you what he did. After 14 years, he went up and he met some people and blah, blah, blah he's going to include some very spiritual components, some very doctrinal components, and some very practical components. It's not just a historical account. He wants you to learn from what he did. And so he gives us this. Now, the book of Galatians has several themes. We've alluded to one today, freedom, freedom in Christ. That will be featured in our passage here. But it also contains this notion that there is one gospel and it comes from one triune God and it is divine. And by divine, I don't mean it's fancy. I mean it came from God and not from man. And in this section of the letter, this is what Paul is attending to. In fact, we could probably summarize the ending of verse uh, of chapter one and and on and through chapter Two to say this: the Gospel is of divine, not human origin, therefore it is independently and objectively holy and pure now, if you 've just accepted that as a concept it 's from God, not human, therefore it is independently that means not dependent on anything, and objectively, not subjective, holy and pure. Then what we can see in these verses here, 1 through 10, Paul is taking that teaching and applying it very directly in a very specific way. He says the gospel is of divine origin, and therefore it gives us the holy and pure motivation, confirmation, and activation for what we do. Because it's from God, the gospel gives us holy and pure motivation, confirmation, and activation. So let's see how he does that here in these 10 verses. First he talks about the motivation. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Natural thing to ask, why did you go up to Jerusalem, Paul? What was your motivation? Well, he took Barnabas and Titus along with him, and he says, I went up because of what? Verse 2. Because of a revelation. He received some sort of revelation. Now, we all know that Paul received a revelation on the road to Damascus, but he doesn't seem to be referring to that revelation. He went up because of a revelation and set before them. So he, he received some holy revelation, to set before them something. That's his motivation, his primary motivation. Notice, though, he's, he's couched it just a little bit. He says he's doing this privately. Notice he's meeting with these bigwigs in Jerusalem. He talks about them, right? James, Peter, John. Now, we don't know exactly what year this is. It could be 46, could be 50-ish, or could be 60, somewhere in that ballpark between A.D. 46 and A.D. 60, depending on what other events we want to align with this. But even then, in 46, and certainly by 60, these were bigwigs in the church. These were the leaders of the church. He says they seem to be pillars. We read that. And what is he doing? He said, though privately before those who seemed influential... Now, this is a little bit of an interesting (laughs) phrasing here. They seemed influential. I would have thought that John, the beloved, was influential. I would have thought that James, the brother of Jesus, was, in fact, influential. What does he mean? What is Paul getting at by saying they seemed influential? Well, he's trying to disconnect you from these really cool dudes who are in charge of the church. He's trying to say, I met with these brothers. They seemed influential. But whether they were influential or not, the gospel is not influenced by them. The gospel comes from God. And they don't influence that. So while they seem influential in the church, and they're important, that's not the focus of why he's presenting this to the Galatians. He's letting them know the gospel is critical To you. The gospel is critical to you. We've just said, because it provides your motivation, your confirmation, and your activation. And here he is, motivated by a revelation, and he says this, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in. You see, he's responding not just to the call which he had to Jerusalem, but to a very specific response There were false brothers. I think it's an interesting phrase. If we were looking through Scripture, we'd actually find it really in only one other place, false term, false brothers. But what is he saying? He's saying, you know, it is possible. It's possible in a Christian community for there to be those who are not of the gospel, those who are false teachers. But he doesn't just emphasize that they're false teachers. He's trying to emphasize here they're false brothers. These are not your friends when it comes to the truth of Scripture. They are working against you. And so he's motivated by that. And then he says this, To them we did not yield in submission, verse 5, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, his motivation has multiple layers here. Revelation from God, needing to meet with those who seem to be an authority, a specific problem of false teachers, false brothers, and wanting the gospel to be preserved for the Galatians and for us today. If you look at this structure here, I think we can account for eight things. His spirit-driven collaborative, he's wanting to meet with them, it's practical, he's getting a confirmation from them that he's preaching a gospel that's consistent with theirs. It's strategic. You know, strategy sounds like the kind of thing we don't really want to talk about unless it's part of a game, meaning it, it seems big and highfalutin and whatever. But think about this, strategically speaking, if I want to go to Atlanta Airport, it's south of me. And my strategy is to get to the airport, so I need to go south. But actually, if I'm here, I'm going to go north on 385 in order to go south. That's a tactic I'm going to take to achieve the strategy of getting to 385. What sort of things do you do that are tactical like that within a strategy? What are the sort of things you do? Here's a simple one. You get a good night's rest. You see, you can't work... (laughs) unless you're sleeping. You can't work while you're sleeping. But you must have the tactic of getting good rest in order to be strategic in working. What else do you do? Well, to glorify God, you come here. One of your tactics for carrying out your call in the kingdom is to be here worshiping with the Lord. That's one of your tactics, and one of the tactics that Paul is addressing here is this strategic notion of getting the gospel right. He's been out and about for 14 years. He's a missionary, and now he's sort of on furlough. He's back here in Jerusalem, not because he needs to be in Jerusalem to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world, tactically, no, tactically, he needs to come to Jerusalem so that he can confirm what he's doing is making good sense. Now, I think it's an important point to take a, a break and say, notice that Paul does not once, you know Paul, we've been reading him for weeks, he does not once question whether his gospel is authentic. So when he says, in verse 2, um, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, that's one of his motivations, to make sure he's not running in vain. He's not saying, hey, gee, I want to make sure, I've been preaching for 14 years, I want to make sure I got it right. No, he's concerned that as the gospel gets out, it needs to be connected. It's like our jigsaw puzzle. He wants the pieces to be connected in logical ways that sound like we're all preaching the same gospel, because we are. But it's possible to sound like you're preaching the wrong gospel, and that's what they were doing here. Titus was a Greek. He'd not been circumcised, because when you're born a Greek and not born Jewish, you weren't circumcised 2,000 years ago. And here it is being suggested that he should be circumcised. And he's saying, hold on, you're not sounding like the same gospel. Can we come together so that when I'm out... And I tell people, you don't need to be circumcised. I don't have someone else coming along, Peter or somebody, sounding different. Now, we know that doctrine is like this. You can say things like, you don't need to go to church in order to be saved. But by the way, if you're saved, you probably should be in church. And and if we say the sentence is wrong, we can get the doctrine wrong. But sometimes we could say things that casually sound a little off. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He's saying, hey, let's get the jigsaw puzzle right. So it's the same picture. So we've got this strategic motivation, this responsive motivation. We've already talked about the false teaching, this liberating. Again, one of his themes is freedom. He wants to liberate them from the foolishness. Hey, 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 you don't have to do circumcision. By the way, there are lots of other things you don't have to do, but he's beginning with that. He's using that as a as a proxy, as an example of a main point. That is part of the Mosaic Law. You have freedom from the Mosaic Law in following certain um, guidelines. What's another one of his motivations? Steadfast. He is preaching steadfastness because he's living steadfastness. He is committed to the gospel. And so he comes to Jerusalem... By the way, it probably crosses his mind that there are one or two people in Jerusalem who have maybe lost track of the gospel. We'll read in Galatians later how astonished Paul is that in such a short time, the Galatians have lost track of the gospel. It's been 14 years since he's been in Jerusalem. He wants them to be steadfast as well. His steadfastness, their steadfastness together. But really, that last motivation, I think, is quite curious. It's the one that ends uh, verse 5. For you. It's selfless. His motivation is selfless. He is bringing them the gospel for them. He's bringing the gospel back to Jerusalem to confirm it for them. Now, you may have noticed from those eight things I just read, this fellow Paul sounds an awful lot like Jesus Christ. Think, think that through. Spirit-driven. What happened when Jesus began his earthly ministry? Led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. Jesus was Spirit-driven. It was revelation that drove his work. Collaborative. Jesus did not come into the world, go to the Romans, die on a cross, and be resurrected without having called disciples to him. Without having brought people like you, like me, to him. Jesus was collaborative, and Paul is collaborative. Even from a distance, he's collaborative. He's writing this letter to the Galatians. Jesus was strategic. You you have to see how dying on a cross is a wonderful tactic if your strategy is resurrection. But it's an ugly tactic, isn't it? Jesus was very strategic in how he lived and died and rose. And Paul is emulating that here. Jesus was very responsive to the false teaching. You see, God's word was in the hands of the people. They had his word. The high priests knew the word. The scribes and Pharisees knew the word. But there was falsity to what they were teaching. So he was responsive. It was liberating. Clearly, Christ liberated us from our sins, and Christ was steadfast. He never changed. And Christ was selfless for you. Christ was selfless. Paul is his. Paul's motivation is the motivation to follow the path of Christ, and that's why he came back to Jerusalem when he could be out preaching the gospel. On his mission trips, you know, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, you turn to the back. There's going to be some a bunch of lines that shows Paul's first missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey. You've seen these maps. He was an active dude. It was probably painful for him to come to Jerusalem to take a break from that. But he he was spirit-led, and he was doing this for the Galatians, because now when the churches are being started in Asia Minor, in Turkey, near them, they can all be of one mind, of one gospel, and there can be consistency. Well, so that was verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 8, we have this confirmation. It's a critical part of why he's there, is this confirmation. As I already said, he did not need someone to say to him, yeah, Paul, uh, you seem to be preaching the gospel okay. He presented to them, he says, I presented to them the gospel that I'd been preaching to the Gentiles. What does Gentiles mean? The, the term means nations, and pretty much in a Jewish culture, it means the nations that aren't Jewish, right? It's the other guys. And he's been preaching this. He refers to Peter as the gospel of the circumcised, which would mean of the Jews, and him uh, him as the preacher of the gospel to the uncircumcised, the nations, the Gentiles. It's a curious distinction because, by the way, Peter, as you probably recall, witnessed to a centurion who was a Gentile, Paul, what did Paul do? What do you know of Paul when he went into a town? What was the first thing he did when he went into a town? He went to the synagogue. Was that to be the apostle to the Gentiles? No, it's where he began, because again, this notion of the connectedness, the puzzle being brought together with one picture. And so, as an apostle to the Gentiles, he is bringing to them this opportunity for confirmation. Think about it. Do you have a birthday party for somebody? <clears throat> because you don't know when their birthday is? <laughs> no, you celebrate what you know together. This is your birthday. Let's celebrate. He gets there for the confirmation, like, a, like an anniversary or a birthday, a confirmation of this is what we're rejoicing in, isn't it? It's a motivational Speech, if you will, to say, isn't this what we agree with? When you agree. And so he's done that. He's achieved that with them. Look with me in verse 6. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Again, somewhat off-the-cuff comment there. God shows no partiality. By the way, he's quoting from Leviticus. Leviticus 19.15, he's making an allusion to, which is God does not distinguish. When you see someone, you might say, oh, he has a police uniform on. I'm thinking of him as a police officer. Or you see someone on television, you say, oh, well, that's a congressman. Or you see someone sleeping in the gutter, and you say, there's a poor homeless person. Well, God regards all those people the same. He he has equal esteem for all of those people because God shows no partiality based on the hat you wear. But he does show partiality based on holiness. And so he calls his people to holiness. So he says, they seemed influential. And what does it say at the end of verse 6? And they added nothing to me. Now what he's simply saying there is they didn't change what I said with the gospel. I shared the gospel that I've been preaching to the Gentiles and they added nothing to it. They didn't subtract anything from it. They didn't add circumcision to it. They did nothing with it. They agreed, which is why then in verse 7 it says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had, entrusted, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, it says... Um, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. Now, we preserve that concept, but you can imagine back then it was even more special. A right hand of fellowship. They were saying, we're locking in arms as brothers. And so he's got this confirmation. Notice the elements of his confirmation. Reverence, respectful reverence. I'm noticing that you're important. By the way, you seem influential, so I'm acknowledging you. He's dependent upon divine perspective. God doesn't see you as any different, but I'm here. He demonstrates his purpose. He gets a consensus, and this is what I think is critical. He gets a consensus. They're all in agreement. See, when we send missionaries off, or when we start a ministry, when we go to Diamond Health, and share a worship service once a month to the patients there. We need to have confirmation that we're all saying the same thing. I don't mean we're saying it identically. We don't need everyone putting the edges around the jigsaw puzzle. The middle has to be filled in. We need people doing different things, taking different approaches. By the way, have you ever done one of those jigsaw puzzles where it has a picture on one side and a picture on the other side? So you have the task of trying to flip over the pieces. Is this, that's what the false brothers were doing. They're putting the wrong pieces in and trimming some with scissors. And Paul is saying, when we deliver ministry, we need confirmation that we're on the right page. Doctrine is good, is what Paul is saying. Doctrine is good. You know, there's a famous, famous commentary on Galatians by Martin Luther. He loved Galatians because it focuses so much on justification. I don't mean that's why, but it's consistent with him. You know what he says about this? He says, we, we would hold the Pope up with our hands. We would kiss his feet if he had sound doctrine. This is Martin Luther speaking of the Pope. Doctrine matters, but we can't affirm those who have distorted the gospel. And so we get to these last two verses, the activation. The activation. They've been activated, 9 and 10. When James and, John, James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace, they give me the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles. Go to the Gentiles. Only they asked us to remember the poor. It's a funny sentence at the end of that whole passage, isn't it? Paul has brought them money... <laughs> To help the poor, Paul has been collecting the Jerusalem collection for the poor. Paul cares about the poor, and they're reminding him. Why do you think they did that? I don't know the answer to this, but let me say this. Have you ever reminded someone else something of something that you wanted to remember? (laughs) I'm not saying that they were forgetting the poor, but, but they wanted to make sure the gospel includes what James says is true religion, which is visiting the widows and orphans, which is caring for those who are needy. That when we say the, gospel, is doctrine, uh, say the gospel, gospel as doctrine, we want to be careful that it's not only doctrine, that it's also practical, and to remind us of our calling and our accountability to bringing the gospel to humans who are in need and that's what, he's, what they're saying here. Bring the gospel to those who are in need, the poor. Well, it's a beautiful passage, right? Paul is there. Titus doesn't get circumcised. Barnabas is there. By the way, Barnabas and Paul will later divide, won't they? They'll go off and do different parts of the puzzle. But they have one gospel, and that gospel has been confirmed here. Where are you? Paul was a man on a mission. He had a motivation. He got his confirmation. He was, got his activation. Where are you? Are you a man on a mission? Or a woman on a mission? Or a young person on a mission? Where's your mission? Do you have a Christ-centered motivation? When you go through your list of why you do things... Are you comparing it to what Christ did? I'm not asking that in a negative way. Don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm suggesting what Paul is saying. Can we confirm <clears throat> that when we act, we're beginning with the right motivation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and His love. Can we get confirmation? Did, this, is, this is your confirmation right here, God's word. The Spirit has preserved this for you to hear this today so that you can know what the gospel is. And guess what? You know what the gospel is. We've been reading it in our bulletin every week. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. You've got the gospel right here. So let me suggest this. You've been activated. You've got your activation. Paul is living it for you, so that you can know what you are to do. Now, you don't have to leave Jerusalem for another 14 years or whatever, but that might be a good plan. But the person next door to you is your mission field today. Now, there may be someone in this room who says, you know, Duncan, I'm, I'm not sure I got the motivation. I'm not sure I got the confirmation. I, it seems a little different than what I'm thinking. I plead with you. I plead with you. Look to God's Word. Paul has outlined it. James has outlined it. All 66 books outline it. Please, look to God's Word for that motivation and pray that the Holy Spirit would activate you to recognize and confirm the Gospel. You see, I've delivered to you what Paul delivered to the Galatians, a motivation, a confirmation, and an activation. And I pray that you will act. Let's close in prayer. Great Heavenly Father, your word is powerful and true. Your word is all that we need. Jesus Christ is sufficient Paul teaches us so clearly. Your word brings us the truth. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. The truth of your Son. So, Lord, we ask that this week you would bless us with this knowledge and give us strength. And we pray all of this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.